Jesus, we give thanks for today. We give thanks for your word. We, we, God, are so thankful that it is alive and active. And I pray, God, that as we look into it this morning, that your spirit would be alive and active in our hearts and in our minds. So break through whatever barriers we may have come into this place with. Um, break through the, the stress that we maybe have come in, the, all the things going on in life, the weariness uh, of life, suffering of God, um, the things that we look to outside of you to give us hope, whatever, God, uh, we come in here carrying, we, just, we choose now to let go and open ourselves to the true living God. So break through, whatever that looks like for each person in this room, including me, would you just break through? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our series looking, uh, we're going through the book of Galatians this summer, and this morning I'm really excited because I get to preach on a theme that I, I absolutely love preaching on, and that is idolatry. And you might go, what? That's weird. And why? Like, Here's the reason that I absolutely love to preach on, on idolatry is because nobody thinks th they worship idols. Nobody thinks they're an idolater. When we think of idolatry, when we think about idols, we think about sort of ancient pagan worship of like statues. And we think of people bowing down to, to statues, to things that a person can see and touch. And that is an idol and that can be an idol. But the truth is that every single one of you, myself included, are idolaters. We have idols in our lives that we worship. And the tricky thing about idols is that they are really good at hiding. And this morning, I want to invite you to open yourself up to, to recognize the working idols in your life because they are there. I met somebody um, a couple weeks ago and found out I was a pastor, and they were quick to tell me that they were not a religious person. I'm not. A, I, I, I'm a religious. I'm non. I'm non-religious. And I, you know, I've met people that have said that before. But I, 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 I didn't say this to the person. I just said, oh. Um, but the reality is, is there's not a single human being who is non-religious. Um, I don't think there's such thing as a non-religious person because everyone is worshiping something or someone. Everyone's hearts are after something or someone. Is it the true living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is it something else? What God or gods or thing are you chasing after? Because you're chasing after things. You're chasing after something. Everybody is chasing after something. And it may not be a religion. It may not be a God. It could be money. It could be wealth. It could be power. It could be sex. It could be acclamation. It could be friends and popularity. Our, our desires, our affections, our love, our time, our resources, we are putting somewhere. And we don't ever say these are the things that we worship, but they are. And so where, are your, where, are, where do your affections go? Where do your hopes go? Where do you ultimately look for joy? Is it in the true living God or is it something else? Is it in your job? Is it in your family? Is it in your kids? Is it in the, your success? Is it in your kids' success? 
I mean, ultimately, where is your worship going? Hudson Taylor, um, when he died, they found a piece of paper in his diary, and the piece of paper showed all this wear and tear, and it was obvious that he had spent every day glancing and reading and reflecting on this piece of paper. And some of you are going, who is Hudson Taylor? That's Hudson Taylor. Um, Hudson Taylor, uh, legendary missionary to China. He spent um, 54 years, I mean, he was one of the first and pioneering um, Westerners to go into China, China and start to evangelize. He spent 54 years in China. He was the first um, missionary, real, I mean, there was very few, but he was the first missionary with real kind of vision for China, and 800 other missionaries eventually followed him over. He was a part of starting over 125 schools, Christian schools uh, in China, and they attribute over 20,000 Chinese people who came to Christ and Jesus through the ministry of Hudson Taylor. Historian Ruth Tucker summarizes this um, about his life. No other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor, a man of incredible faith, a man of incredible vision, a man who followed Jesus, heard God's voice, and did something about it, and God used him in extraordinary ways. And at the end of his life, after he had died, someone or some people were looking through his journal, and they found this piece of paper, and on it was a poem. And this is what was written. Oh, Jesus, make, myself, make thyself to me a living, bright reality more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. What Hudson Taylor wanted was that Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is, his power and his presence would daily touch his life. That Jesus would become most important in his life every single day. That Jesus would become the object of his hopes, his affections, his love, his desires. And he spent every day reading that to remind himself because the world was, was throwing all sorts of other things, idols, that were trying to take the hopes, affections, desires, and drives from Hudson Taylor. And it's true for you and me. And so I ask you this morning, are you willing to have an honest uh, moment with yourself and ask God to reveal the idols, the functioning kind of messiahs in your life, the things that you think are going to ultimately bring you happiness, that will ultimately uh, bring you satisfaction and hope and joy and life? Are you willing to honestly ask God to reveal those things to you? And I hope you will, because those things are the things that enslave us. They overpromise and always, always underdeliver. 
And this is what, what this, these verses that I want to share with you this morning out of Galatians 4. This is what Paul is, is preaching to the Christians in Galatia. Listen to what he says. This is Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. He's saying before you, convert, you were a Christian, you were slave to, s- slaves to all these non-gods, all these idols. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. The Galatian Christians are in danger. This is why Paul's tone is so aggressive throughout the letter. I mean, these are, these are converts. These are, these are Gentile um, or Greek pagan converts. These are Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, and they find themselves falling under the influence of false teachers. And what these false teachers are ultimately saying is like, look, if you're really going to be accepted by God, it's just, it's not enough. Jesus is not enough. Faith in Jesus is not enough. Faith in Jesus, yes, is required, but then there's all these other things that are are also required. Circumcision, observing certain laws, certain certain, um, practices and and commandments. Now, it's not that, that you shouldn't observe the commandments or the laws. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying what's enslaving the Galatian Christians is this idea that Jesus is not enough. That, that faith in Jesus um, needs more for salvation. You need that plus more. And so in, in essence, what he's saying is he's saying the idea that someone comes in and tells you that you're saved by your good works, by, by your obedience to the law, by, these, by, by following God's commandments, like you're ultimately saying that, that I'm my own savior. I'm my own Messiah. Like it, it's... I have the ability through my good works to save myself. And the only way you can get to Jesus is by recognizing the opposite. I can't save myself. It doesn't matter how good I am or or how law-abiding I am. I fall short, but Jesus never has and never will. And I want Jesus to be my Messiah. Do Do you see the difference? So it's important it's not Paul saying, you know, it's, you shouldn't follow the Bible, the commandments, the law. He's not saying that. He's saying when you look at the law as the mechanism to your salvation, as your savior, you are enslaved. Faith in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our, of our, our he is our Messiah and the object of our faith and salvation. And so, um, he says, when you turn back and you add all these religious practices with the belief that they save you, you are worshiping non-gods. You are being enslaved by non-gods. So what's, what's the lesson there? The lesson is, look, idols, can, idols very often are good things, 
that God has given us that become necessary things. So an idol can be uh, Christianity without Christ. It can be thinking that you can save yourself through your good deeds and your obedience while at the same time rejecting the need for Jesus. That's, that's being enslaved by works righteousness. But idols are a lot of other things. They're, they, they're, they can be good things, good things that God has given us. Work, our families, our kids, our, you know, like sex, uh, money, like all these things that God has, has given and created. They can become good things, they, they can turn from being good things that we control to becoming absolutely necessary things that control us. And when they control us, and this is what Paul is saying, we become enslaved to them. So what, um, what are these non-gods that Paul is, is talking about? Well, at this time, in the midst of a Greek pagan uh, culture, you had a, a, a group of people the Greeks, you know, that, that Romans were, were all worshiping many gods. And there was practically a god for everything. There was, um, you know, a god for every basic element and created thing. So, you, ha- you know, behind the earth, fire, water, sun, moon, stars, land, agriculture, bread, wine. I mean, everything had a deity attached to it. So you had Bacchus, which was, the, believe it or not, the god of partying. You had um, Ares, the god of war. You had Aphrodite, the god of sexual love and beauty. And you know everybody kind of had their gods. Like everyone had their favorite gods or their most important gods. And so if you were a farmer, you're, you're gonna offer sacrifices to the god of agriculture. If you were a sailor, you're gonna worship and, and pray to the sea god. If you were a merchant, you were going to likely pray to the sort of gods of, there was gods of financial luck. And what Paul is speaking into is he's speaking into a culture that's making gods out of everything. And see, we don't think we live in that type of culture or world anymore because we don't bow to the sun or the moon or the stars or we don't pray to the god of agriculture But we, see, we don't think we're the same, but we are. We're just praying to different idols and different gods. The God of fame, the God of popularity, the God of money and wealth, the God of health and prosperity. And Paul is is trying to to get get through to these, these people that look, anything can be, can be worshipped. And, and anything can become the basis of your religion. Something that is treated as a God. This is what Paul is talking about. And that's why I believe that there is not a single person who is an irreligious person. You either believe in the true God or else you are a slave to worshipping something that you treat as a God that really isn't. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British uh, pastor, he said this, the greatest danger and enemy that confronts us is not a matter of deeds or of actions, but of idolatry. And what does he mean by that? It's not just what you do. Your deeds, your actions is what you do. It's what's underneath. It's what's motivating your deeds and actions. And what he's saying is like literally idolatry is under every sin. You're, you're, trying, you're trying to feed something. You're trying to get something that's ultimately gonna fill you up. And so you, you act and we, I think sometimes we look and we just sort of go like, oh, it's, my, it's just my actions or it's my, my sinfulness and I'm just a sinner, which, which yeah, we are, but that's a, that's a cop-out. We're not going far enough when we look at our sin. We've got to look and go, what's underneath it? What are the motivations that are leading me to sin? I mean, when you fail to be like Jesus, when, when we fail to be honest, we fail to love, when we fail to be generous, when we fail to be holy, when we fail to, you know, love others, the, you know, it's not just that you're a sinner. I mean, it is. But if you just stop and go, well, I'm a sinner, I guess that's the way it is. You've got to go, what is underneath my deeds and actions? What's underneath my, 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 my sin? Why am I lying? Why am I dishonest? Why am I bitter? Why am I anxious? Why am I despondent? Why am I unforgiving? Why do I fail to be generous? Why am I, why am I selfish? I heard one pastor say, whenever you blow it, you should always be asking yourself, what is it that I have in place of God? Not just go, oops, I sinned and I'm glad God forgives me. But, but what is it that is in place of God? What is leading me? What are the idols that are influencing my, my behaviors, my, my, my actions and my deeds? Why is it so important to me, that thing, that I'm putting it in place of God? What is it that I think is absolutely necessary? I think that is such a powerful question. What is absolutely necessary? Like That is what an idol is. The word lust in the Bible is not just like, oh, an affection, a random affection. It is a, it moves from a natural affection to an absolutely necessary need. I have to have it. I have to experience that. I have to fulfill that. I remember once I met this guy and he was obsessed with having status on an airline. I was like, cool, good for you. Like, you know, and, and I didn't say that. I was like, oh, wow, like, yeah, I think that's, it's great. And he goes, yeah, you know, I was short this last year, like buy some MQMs or whatever it is on Delta, you know, and I was like, oh, bummer. He goes, but I found out you can pay to buy them. You can pay to buy MQMs instead of, you know, going on a flight. And so I bought them and now I have status this next year. And I, I, I was thinking in my head, what an idiot. You spent your money on, like that's how you spent your money? And, and I go, that, 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 that moved in this guy's life from being like a, a nice perk if you travel. It's not that it's a bad thing to have status, 
but it had become literally an idol in this guy's life. Like it went from like a, a desire to a necessity, a necessity enough that he's willing to use his hard earned money to buy those, whatever they are, little medallion stupid things, you know? And we would brush that off. Nobody would say that's an idol. Nobody. That's an idol. Because there's a belief in that, that it will give me something, that, that like I, I need to have it. It's not just a want, it is, it, it, it is a have. I have to have it. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And we think it is a silly illustration, but the silliness of it is the point that anything and everything can become an idol. And yet we, because we brush it off as silly or whatever, we miss, we miss it. And that is, the, that is the, the, the power of idols and the way that the enemy is hiding them from our lives. So, when you allow anything to become your object of worship that is outside of God and Jesus. You are allowing those things to functionally take over your heart. Something besides God becomes your beauty. Something besides God becomes your highest good. Something besides God becomes your joy, your fulfillment, your hope. Something besides God um, takes your adoration. Idolatry is under every sin, always. It is always the alternative to knowing God in purity. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones defines idolatry. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and attention, my energy and my money. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. Now, it's important to know that again, idols are not bad things. They're not, they're not inherently wrong or sinful. I mean, some idols can be. But most are not. They are good things that are made best things. I remember um, having a conversation a number of years ago with a, with a, a friend of mine about alcohol. And, um, like, I don't believe that alcohol is inherently sinful. Like, if you take a sip of it, you're, you're sinning. At the same time, the Bible's clear. You got to be careful with it. Like it can easily take over your life. It does take over people's lives. It, it is destructive. And some people cannot, you know, have it and never, shouldn't have it. Um, anyways, having a conversation with my friend and I just said, you know, honestly, like I've noticed like you got to have it like every time there's like a gathering. Like any social gathering, any time where people were coming over or we were like going out, it was like alcohol had to be a part of it, like a part of it. And I just asked, I was like, why? Why is that? He's like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I was like, 
oh yeah, I wasn't asking if you were an alcoholic, and I don't know if you're, you're, you're an alcoholic, but I'm curious, like, do you think it maybe has power over you? And he's like, no, I don't. Like, I'm, I, I don't drink too much. Um, I don't, you know, get sloppy, you know? And he just started to say things like that. I was like, okay, I'm not, you know, it, I got really defensive really quick, as you can probably imagine. Um, but I said, you know, okay, cool. Like, if that's true, I go, you know what? Don't drink for a month. If, 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 if what you're saying, like, it does not have any control over you, don't drink for a month. And he goes, I can't, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. No. I know I have control over it. And that's basically how the conversation kind of ended. And I, I, I you know, I sadly kind of look back and I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that, I don't know if he's ever actually seen it, but, but I'm like, if you can't stop something for a month, you've got to seriously ask yourself the question, uh, does that have control over me? This is why Christians are called to fast and why, and sadly, why none of us hardly do it. Fasting is the, is the practice of, of saying to things, man-made things, you do not own me, I own you. Like, God is enough. See, like, taking a month to say, I'm not going to drink, is, is you saying, I have power over alcohol. Like, I don't need it to have a good time. I don't need it to be a part of every single social thing. Like, I want to make sure that alcohol knows that, it, that I, I am over it and it is not over me. I'm going to make sure that it is not an idol in my life. And if you can't say no to stuff in your life, you've got to seriously question if that is a functioning idol of your heart. And it could, again, it could be alcohol, it could be a thousand different things. I have a friend who takes every February, I do think it's funny that he picks the shortest month of the year to do this, <laughs> but every February he does a no buy, no nothing new February. Now it doesn't mean, I'm like, well, do you eat? He's like, yeah, like, like the basics, I, like, I got to pay the bills and I got to get food and I got to do this, but I don't buy anything new, like clothes, toys, all that stuff. And he goes, it's my way of saying no. Like consumerism, you do not have power over me. Money, like, like you do not have power. I, I own you. I'm over you. I do not bow to you. You bow to me. Like the, 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 the attraction of getting something new and, and the chemical response that that does in our brains, like I'm not going to go to that to give me happiness. And so I ask you, what are the things that you could not say no to for a month? And, I, and to go, does that have functional idolater, you know, idol control in my life. And I, and I, would, I would implore you to take control because you're either being controlled by it or you're controlling it. And that's what Paul is saying when he says that you go back to these things, they enslave you. Any good thing that you raise up to become the ultimate thing enslaves you. 
And these can be good things and these can be bad things. I'm not just picking on bad behaviors. This can become your religion. It can become your goodness. It can become your Christianity. It can become your, your religious practices. And you prop yourself up and you worship yourself because you're better than the other person. You're less sinful than the other person. And so maybe for some of you, it's not looking at bad habits that have become idols in your life. Maybe it becomes the good habits in your life that are more important ultimately to you than Jesus Christ. That are functioning messiahs in your life outside of Jesus Christ. And so the last question, how can we be free from this? How can we be free from our idols? How can we be free from idolatry? And he says this, how can you go back to slavery when you know God or rather are known by God? The answer is how do you get free? You get freed through Jesus Christ, the gospel. Jesus frees us from our idols. See, when your idol is like friends and approval and popularity, it's gonna be this kind of, up and down thing of what, you, what people say about you and what you're invited to and all those different, different things. Like if that becomes the object of what gives you happiness and, and joy and affirmation in your life, it's gonna be up and down. It's gonna be a roller coaster. But here's what Jesus says about you and I. Your performance, it doesn't mean anything. Your popularity means nothing. All those things mean nothing. All that matters is that God knows you. He loves you. He sent his son for you. Jesus died for you to break the bondage and enslavement of false messiahs and idols. God knows you. And look, my knowledge of God, your knowledge of God, your, the feeling of God is gonna go up and down, but his knowledge of me, his knowledge of you is absolutely permanent, fixed, unchanging. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you embrace that, when you experience that truly, when you know God and you know that he knows you, he becomes the, objects of, the object of your affection, your joy, your hope, your desires. He is moved into the rightful spot of your life. One, number one, And that's where he's supposed to live, number one. Even above your family, your husband, your kids. God, number one. We have to truly experience God. We've got to experience the love of God in our heart. We've got to experience the presence of God in our lives. But sadly, many of us are missing it because we're being blocked by idols. We're not letting God in because we're chasing after everything else. This is why Hudson Taylor would read this poem every day because he realized this is the only way I'm ever going to get freedom from my idols where Jesus becomes a living, bright reality more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie, that Jesus would become my everything. Jesus would become my hope and my joy, that he would become sweeter to look at than anything else I could see. 
that, my, my, that he would become the objects of my affection, my joy, my love, my worship, and my praise. That he would be my God. That he would be my Messiah. And every day he would say this because he knew Jesus and the gospel was the only thing that would free him from the idols that were clamming, you know, clamoring to take control over his life and the idols that are clamoring to take control over our lives. So if you took this poem, this prayer, and you went to Jesus every day, I I believe he will meet us. He died to break the barrier so he could meet with you. But how many of us wake up with our, with our thoughts and affections on all these other things besides Jesus? We start our day with all the other things outside of Christ. And one thing I'm asking you to do is what if you started today? And put, yeah, write it down, take a picture of it. I, you know, get a tattoo. I don't care, whatever you need to do to remember it. What if... You just started to recite this every morning. I do believe that Jesus will meet with you. Everything he has done, God lost his son so he could meet with you. He is not going to drag his feet and I want to implore you not to drag yours. But you got to come to him with your idols. And I'll tell you what, they are sneaky things. For some, you don't see them and you need God to show you them. For others, you know they're there, but you're so afraid to bring it to him or admit that they're there. I say, you gotta break through. If you want to keep, if you want to live in freedom and stop being enslaved by this stuff, you've you've gotta look for them, identify them, and bring them to the feet of Jesus and cast them down. And then you've gotta, you've gotta press into being known by God and knowing God. And reading this every day could help. Getting in God's word, absolutely. He will promise to meet with us. And there we find freedom. There we find joy and hope. There we find love, acceptance, affirmation, purpose. All the things we deeply desire. But don't be fooled. Idols are good at lying. And they trick and they deceive. But Jesus has never lied. And he promises all those things. If you'll just seek him first. Let's stand together. Jesus, Spirit, um, work on us. Reveal to us the functioning idols in our lives. Spirit, it's, it's a work only you can do, and I, we invite you to do it. And we give thanks that we can turn to you in repentance of sin and idolatry, and you receive us and love us and, and care for us. I pray, Jesus, that our church, that each person in this church, that you, Jesus, would become the object of our affections, our, our, our desires, our drives, our motivations, our deeds. We lay down all the functioning messiahs and idols that we have worshipped and we come back to you and we worship the one true God. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We cannot thank you enough for releasing us from the bondage of sin and idols. Thank you for what you promised to give. And I, we believe that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be given to us. We claim that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.